0: New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions, but the Downeast region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Downeast, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Downeast, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones we are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening.
1: Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most-watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. No matter how
0: far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who's about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served.
1: Hi, guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you as well to those of you who donate to the Patreon account. I've launched a campaign to raise funds to buy a new iMac, my current computer has been in use for over eight years, and it is affecting my ability to create new content. As previously stated, my Patreon account can be found at www.patreon.com For those of you who would prefer to make a one-time, single donation, there is also the option to send money to my PayPal account. The email address to send it to is Morgan Rector, my last name spelled R-E-C-T-O-R 31. Morganrector three three one at hotmail.com. Remember, any amount is fine. If one dollar one time is all you wish to donate, it would be gratefully accepted. Thank you for all your support, whatever forms it has taken. Enjoy the show. to Human Monsters. This chapter in the book of Human Monsters about Randy Kraft is the third installment in the Freeway Killers series, after episodes profiling Patrick Kearney and William Bonin. Aside from being known as one of the three Freeway Killers, Randy Stephen Kraft is also known as the Scorecard Killer and the Southern California Strangler. Kraft was born in Long Beach, California, on March 19, 1945. He was the fourth child and only son of Opal Lee and Harold Herbert Kraft. His parents moved to California from Wyoming at the beginning of World War II. His family was blue-collar, with his father employed as a production worker and his mother as a sewing machine operator. His father was distant with his family, rarely spending any quality time with them. Randy received attention and love from his mother and sisters primarily. The family moved to Midway City in 1948. In elementary school, Randy was deemed to be above average in intelligence. He was assigned to accelerated classes. As an adolescent, Randy became interested in politics. He was a conservative and supporter of the Republican Party. His dream was to become a U.S. Senator. In high school, he, along with two friends, started a Westminster World Affairs Club. He was remembered as a pleasant and bright student. He achieved a straight-A performance. He dated girls on occasion, But years later, staff and alumni noted that they suspected he was a homosexual. Years later, Kraft said he knew since high school that he was gay, but he stayed in the closet for several years. He graduated 10th out of 390 students. He enrolled in Claremont Men's College in Claremont, California. He majored in economics. In Claremont, he abandoned the conservative orthodoxy. Whether connected to this or not, he entered into his first homosexual relationship at the time, or at least it was the first that anybody else knew of. In 1964, he was hired to tend Bar at the Garden Grove Cocktail Lounge. Its clientele was comprised entirely of gay men. He would visit Laguna Beach and Huntington Beach to have sex with hustlers. He wished to reveal his sexual orientation to his parents, but to reduce the impact, he did it gradually by bringing men home to meet them and introducing them as friends. No one knew that he was gay or even suspected it. 1966 1966 Randy Kraft was arrested and charged with lewd conduct. He propositioned an undercover cop in Huntington Beach. He had no criminal record and the charges were dropped. In 1967 his political views changed radically. He became a liberal and registered as Democrat. In 1968 he graduated from Claremont Men's College. With a Bachelor of Arts degree in economics. Four months after his graduation, he enlisted in the U.S. Air Force. He underwent basic training in Texas. Having completed boot camp, he was stationed at Edwards Air Force Base in Southern California. He supervised the painting of test planes. He was eventually promoted to the rank of Airman First Class and supervisor manager. After receiving these designations, he disclosed the true nature of his sexual proclivities to his family. In a letter he wrote to a friend, Kraft said his father flew into a rage. His mother was disappointed, but accepted it, and made an effort to be more understanding. Eventually his family came to terms with his sexual orientation, and he remained in close contact with his family overall, though his siblings have indicated that Randy began to distance himself from them after disclosure. Kraft revealed his homosexuality to his superiors in the Air Force in 1979. He received a general discharge. The discharge was categorized as having its basis on medical grounds. Kraft met with a lawyer to discuss the possibilities of changing the ruling, but the Air Force did not budge from its position. March 1970 Randy Kraft's first known sexual assault. He met 13-year-old Joseph Gerald Fancher from Westminster at Huntington Beach. Fancher intimated to Kraft that he ran away from home that very day. Kraft invited the youth to stay at his apartment. He even promised that he could live with him. Fancher welcomed this offer and followed Kraft to his apartment complex. Unfortunately for Fancher, Kraft's idea of hospitality was to feed sedatives to the boy and rape him while he was unconscious. Fancher escaped from the apartment a few hours later while Kraft was at work. A good Samaritan was disturbed by Fancher's condition as he was disheveled and disoriented. They called an ambulance. Fancher was taken to hospital, where his stomach was pumped because of the heavy dose of drugs he was given. Police interviewed Joseph at the hospital. He told them Kraft gave him drugs and assaulted him. He did not tell the police or his parents that he was raped. Kraft's apartment was searched, but criminal charges did not result from the investigation. Fancher confessed that he took the drugs voluntarily. The search was conducted without a warrant, so Kraft was on Easy Street for the time being. 1971. Kraft accepted a position as a forklift driver in Huntington Beach. He also enrolled at Long Beach State University. He majored in education. He began a relationship with Jeff Graves, a fellow teaching student. This represented one of the last vestiges of Kraft's consensual relations with men. December 31st, 1975. Three young men, Mark Hall among them, went to a bar after receiving their paychecks to celebrate the new year. After a few rounds of drinks, They decided to pursue what they desired even more, the company of women. One of them obtained a flyer that promised that a party held in San Juan Capistrano would be well attended by females. When they arrived at the party, they were disappointed to find out that all the women had gone. All that remained were a few men playing poker. Two of the men decided to join in the games. Mark Hall wasn't interested. A friend of Hall's helped him make his way to the living room as he was very drunk. He stretched out on a sofa and went to sleep. At midnight his friend went to the kitchen to collect some pots and pans so he could bang them together as part of his New Year's Eve traditions. He went into the living room to wake Mark, but he was not there. They searched all over the house, could not find him anywhere. January 3rd, 1976, 4 p.m. A naked man was discovered on the west side of Bedford Peak, located in the east end of Santiago Canyon in the Saddleback Mountains. He had been murdered. His legs were wrapped around a small tree. The body was contorted into the fetal position. The results from the autopsy determined that he died from alcohol and asphyxiation. The time of death was estimated to have been in the early hours of New Year's Day. The alcohol content in his bloodstream was the equivalent of five six-packs, or a blood alcohol level of .67. That is seven times the legal definition of intoxication in California. The level in his brain alone was 0. 0.59. Traces of Valium and Diazepam were also found in his system. If the alcohol poisoning hadn't killed him, the loam and leaves stuffed into his throat was also likely a contributing factor. The soil was rammed so far down it grazed his lungs. He choked on the dirt and died. This didn't represent the fullest extent of his injuries. He had been tortured. His hands and feet were bound together. He was burned with a cigarette lighter at several points of his body, such as his eyes, scrotum, nose, cheeks, and upper lip. Grooves were cut into his skin with a knife. Some of these cuts penetrated so deeply They nearly made contact with bone. He was sodomized. A swizzle stick was lodged in his urethra and it was pushed all the way to his bladder. His genitals were severed and stuffed into his anus. His rectum was saturated with leaves and other floral detritus. Judging by the presence of dried blood, the pathologists concluded that the victim was alive throughout most of the torture. The police were investigating a series of murders of young men whose corpses were deposited in public spaces. Some were shot. Some were strangled. Some were beaten to death. Some were tortured before they were killed. Most of them had been anally raped. Some of them had drugs in their systems. Many were hitchhikers. As far as the Mark Hall case went, a fragment of his skin was found in an area where he was dragged over some rough terrain. The only possible clue came in the form of a discarded vodka bottle. It was dusted for fingerprints. Halls were identified. There was another set of fingerprints that belonged to an unknown entity. October 5th, a naked and decomposed male body was found at the bottom of a ravine near Ortega Highway. The coroner determined that the date of death occurred sometime around September 20th. It was difficult to nail down an exact date of death due to the advanced state of decomposition. No definitive evidence of foul play was found due to this. The only definite cause of death was alcohol poisoning. His blood alcohol level was .36. Though his ID and other personal items were stripped from his body, his John Doe status was short-lived. He was identified as Wayne Duquette. With so little to go on, investigators were left with no choice but to abandon the case for the time being. Between 1972 and 1975, body dumps became more and more frequent in the general vicinity of Seal Beach, Long Beach, Irvine, Salton Sea, San Bernardino, and the Harbor District of Los Angeles. Progress was slow. The offender was thorough in covering their tracks. Many serial killers struggle with impulse control, but this offender was more oriented to... Highly organized, long-term planning. They were as careful with the scene of the crime as the police. Randy Kraft's relationship with Jeff Graves was deteriorating. Kraft agreed to an open relationship, but he didn't handle it as well as he thought he might. Every one of Jeff's dalliances with other men enraged Kraft. He would go out on long drives. It was these drives that tended to coincide with the murders and body dumps that were keeping detectives on their feet. February 6th, 1973, 11 a.m. A John Doe was found close to the Terminal Island Freeway in Los Angeles. He was naked. A brown sock was stuffed into his anus. A ligature mark was found around his neck. Police speculation had it that the man was garroted with piano wire. He had been dead between 24 and 48 hours. Images of his face were published in a local newspaper. Though he was reported to have been working as a prostitute, nobody came forward with the name. April A motorist spotted a cadaver lying in the road on Alice. This one was dressed, though his shoes were missing. He was approximately 18 years old. Numerous scratches were found on his body, indicating that he had been tossed from a moving vehicle. Cord marks on his wrists suggested he was tied up before he was executed. There was a dark red stain on the seat of his pants. His genitals were cut off about 15 minutes before his death. He'd been sodomized. The purplish hue in his lips implied that he died from suffocation. But blood loss was also proposed as a cause of death. He had no ID on his person. He was never identified. A man identified as John Doe, 52, was killed sometime around Easter Sunday, though the coroner could only estimate the time of death. His body had been dismantled, and tossed all over Southern California. His head was found in Long Beach. His arms, right leg, and torso were discovered in San Pedro. His left leg was spotted behind a bar in Sunset Beach. By the time the fragments of John Doe, 52's body were found and assembled, they had decomposed to the point where the cause of death could not be determined. He was tied up before he was murdered. His eyelids were removed. He was castrated. At some point during the butchering process, the killer stored his remains in a refrigerator. His hands were never located. The relationship of Randy Kraft and Jeff Graves became increasingly dysfunctional. They fought constantly, and broke up regularly. Graves would deliberately do the things he knew would aggravate Kraft. As usual, Kraft took to the road to deal with his anger. After a series of unsatisfactory jobs, Kraft began working in the computer field as a data processing specialist. He established a relationship with a new man. Things were looking up for Randy Kraft. July 30th, 1973, 6.20am. Police were dispatched to the eastbound 405 on-ramp at 7th Street. The body of Ronnie Weeby was found stretched out in an ice plant. He was dressed, but his shoes were taken, and he only wore one sock. The other sock was crammed into his rectum. His pants were unbuttoned, but zipped. His penis was partially exposed. There were ligature marks around his neck. He was beaten about the face. No ID or personal possessions of any kind were found on his person. The coroner ruled that Ronnie had been dead for two days. He'd been tossed from a moving vehicle. There were teeth marks on his genitals and stomach. He'd been tied to rafters indicators of settling blood, and stretch marks on his wrists and ankles were signs of being suspended upside down from rafters. This confused the investigators somewhat, because the other victims were known to be gay. Ronnie Weeby was not only married to a woman, but having an affair with another. December 29th, Hikers discovered the remains of 23-year-old Vincent Cruz Mestas' body at the bottom of a ravine in San Bernardino. Mestas was dressed except for shoes and a single sock. The remaining sock was stuck in his rectal cavity, a well-documented trademark by this point. His head and face were shaved post-mortem by the offender. They also severed both of his hands, the stumps were wrapped in plastic sandwich bags. The hands were never found. A toothpick or some other kind of small stick was forced through his penis into his urethra shortly before his death. June 2, 1974. The remains of Malcolm Eugene Little were found. He was naked. He was propped against a mesquite tree on Highway 86. His legs were spread apart widely. His genitals were severed and disposed of elsewhere. The offender took a tree branch and forced it into Little's anal cavity to a depth of six inches. June 22nd. Eighteen-year-old Marine Roger E. Dickerson was found naked near a street close to Laguna Beach. His penis and left nipple had been chewed. He exhibited signs of anal rape and strangulation. Alcohol and Valium were found in his system. August 3rd. Employees at a Long Beach Harbor oil field found a dead body at a nine-foot embankment. It was 25-year-old Thomas Paxton Lee. He was fully clothed. He had been strangled. August 12th 23-year-old Gary Wayne Cordova's body was found near an embankment in Orange County. His feet were devoid of shoes and socks. His cause of death was ruled to be due to acute intoxication and an overdose of diazepam. November 29th, a partially nude body was found near the San Diego freeway. It was 19-year-old James Dale Reeves. All he wore was a t-shirt that had been drenched in blood. He lay face down between two trees. His white jeans were stained at the crotch. They were found nearby at the base of a tree. His legs were spread to the extent of their reach. A four-foot branch had been thrust into his anus. January 3rd, 1975 17-year-old John Laras was found floating in the ocean near Sunset Beach. A wooden surveyor's stake was lodged in his rectum. Alcohol was found in his system. He had been bound and strangled to death. His body had been dragged over sand for quite some time. Two footprints led up to the spot where he was deposited into the ocean, indicating two perpetrators. January 17th. 21-year-old Craig Victor Juanitas' body was found by construction workers. He was completely clothed, save for his shoes and socks. Curiously, he was wearing two pairs of pants. He was strangled to death, evidenced by the red scar around his neck and his blackened tongue hanging from his mouth. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seaton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, Hey kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, people die everywhere why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas well this new podcast has all that and murder murder it's called slaycation and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation hosted by true crime fanatic Her comedy writer-husband and his TV-producing partner, Slaycation, brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorn, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. May. Three teenagers climbing over rocks at Bell Gardens discovered a skull with some remaining strips of decomposing flesh still attached. The area was searched thoroughly, but the rest of the body was never located. An x-ray technician identified the owner as Keith Crotwell. Friends of his said he was last seen at a nearby gay bar called Ripple's. They notified police that Crotwell was seen leaving in a black-and-white Mustang. A week later, the Department of Motor Vehicles ran plates for the car. The name that came up was Randy Stephen Kraft. They had an address, but he had moved months ago. A detective questioned some mailmen in the area. This lead paid off. One carrier directed the officer straight to where Kraft was living. Detective Woodward went to the address. Kraft was gracious enough to invite him in. Woodward asked Kraft what he was doing the evening of March 29th, which was when Crotwell went missing. Kraft insisted he had never even met Crotwell. Woodward didn't believe him, but intuition wouldn't suffice, so he had to find evidence in the meantime. Kraft was asked to go to the police station to be interviewed. He claimed to be feeling unwell and wasn't up to it. Woodward insisted upon it. Kraft was still dragging his feet, so he was placed under surveillance. May 19th. Randy Kraft reported to the police station so Woodward and his partner, Detective Bell, could interview him. If Kraft was rattled by the experience, it didn't show... He was mild-mannered and calm throughout the process. He agreed to be photographed. He was initially reluctant to allow the officers to photograph his car, but he relented. Kraft was asked about what transpired between him and Keith Crotwell. He told the investigators that he rode with him in Keith's car, and they were both drunk. Kraft let Crotwell drive, but it was Crotwell's first time driving. He got the vehicle stuck in an embankment. While Keith remained at the site, Randy went to get his boyfriend, Jeff, who would come back with him to remove the vehicle from the scene. When he returned, Crotwell had disappeared. The investigators weren't satisfied with this explanation. It didn't make sense to them that Crotwell, a teenager, would commute from southern Orange County a Long Beach marina at such an early hour? And why was his head floating in the ocean, severed from his body? What had been done with the rest of him? Kraft opined that Keith was swimming and stumbled on the rocks, where he knocked himself unconscious. Knocked himself so hard, he decapitated himself. And what happened to the rest of his body was anybody's guess. The detectives decided they had enough material to qualify for an arrest warrant and take Randy Kraft into custody. They were mistaken. Their evidence was deemed insufficient for a warrant, and they were ordered to drop the case. June Jeff was summoned to the police station for questioning and a polygraph. His answers were found to be non-deceptive but this did not reassure Kraft. He knew the detectives were not convinced by the version of the events he presented to them. Things were not going well for him at all. He was diagnosed with hypoglycemia, or a tendency toward low blood sugar. He was charged with lewd conduct because of an incident that occurred near Belmont Shore. To make matters even worse, he was laid off from his job. His relationship with Jeff disintegrated, with Graves being disinterested in the kind of monogamy that Kraft wanted. Graves moved out of their apartment later that year. 1976. Randy had a new boyfriend, another Jeff, his surname being Seelig. They were living together in Laguna Hills. March 21st. Thirteen-year-old Oliver Peter Molitor was found dead on Manhattan Beach. April 7th, seventeen-year-old Kenneth Eugene Buchanan was discovered in Inglewood. April 19th, fourteen-year-old Larry Armand Dares's body was discovered in Los Angeles. June 11th, thirteen-year-old Michael Craig McGee was discovered on Redondo Beach. August 22nd. A John Doe was found. August 28th. The body of 20-year-old Wilfred Lawrence Fahardy was found on Redondo Beach. August 6th. 20-year-old Mark Andrew Oroch was found shot on the same road as John Doe. October 31st. Larry Jean Walters was killed and dumped. December 31st. Mark Howard Hall was murdered. The police reconsidered the possibility that one serial offender was culpable for these crimes. The newest development was that the executioner in question transitioned from the use of steel wire to a gun. The corpses were no longer thrown out of moving vehicles. Instead, they were stuffed into garbage bags and left in the desert or in a dumpster. One 19-year-old man was found in a trash bag near Borrego Hot Springs in September. In October, 16-year-old Randall Lawrence Moore was dumped in a garbage bag and dumped by Highway 80. Some bodies were scattered near the Mexican border. In the past, most of the victims were gay men but many heterosexual men, some in the military, were being slaughtered. Case in point, 27-year-old Marine David Allen was found on October 9th by a remote road in the Fallbrook District. He was shot. April 16th, 1978. 18-year-old Scott Michael Hughes was found on the eastbound on-ramp of the 91 Freeway. Hughes was fully clothed, though the laces were missing from his shoes. Yellow fibers found on his shirt and pants were collected as evidence. A splotch of blood was observed on his crotch. There were ligature scars on his neck. There was alcohol and valium in his system. Strangulation was cited as the official cause of death. The murderer cut open the scrotum and removed the left testicle. June 11th, 3.30 a.m. An off-duty fireman found a body by the side of a road. It had been thrown from a moving vehicle, as evidenced by cuts and scrapes on the epidermis. A shoelace was missing from the man's shoe. He was identified by his prison-issue shoes as Roland Young, The seat of his pants had been soaked in blood. A red ligature scar was found on his right wrist. He had been stabbed in the chest four times. One of the cuts pierced his heart. His scrotum was cut. Both his testicles were removed. The head of his penis was severed. A local woman told police she heard screams around the time Young was murdered. June 12. The body of 21-year-old Marine Richard Keith was found in the middle of a two-lane road near Moulton Parkway. His body was found by an off-duty fireman. A 90-foot trail of blood and skin was left behind as Keith's corpse rolled to its resting spot in the middle of the road. The coroner estimated that the speed the vehicle was driven at the time was at least 50 miles per hour. Keith was naked. No identification was found on his person. He had ligature marks on his wrists and neck. Alcohol and Valium were found in his system. He had overdosed on flurazepam, a sedative used to treat insomnia. Salt water remaining in his throat indicated a death by drowning. July 6th. The body of Keith Klingvale was found near Mission Viejo. This victim was still alive, but he was hardly thriving. He was dying from an overdose of Tylenol and beer. He died by the time first responders arrived. There was a ligature scar around his neck. A lace was missing from one of his boots. His chest had been seared with a cigarette lighter from a car. November 18th, 21-year-old Michael Inderbeaten was dumped straight into the path of morning rush-hour traffic. His hand and eyelids were burnt with a cigarette lighter. He was castrated. The task force assembled to investigate the freeway killers was larger than ever, and there was more pressure than ever to bring the guilty party to justice. They pulled out all the stops. But by the end of the year, they still hadn't come closer to finding the culprit. And the bodies were piling up. June 16th, 1979 The body of 20-year-old Marine Donald Harold Chryssel was found on the on-ramp of the 405 freeway. He wore only boxer shorts. The body had died so recently, it was still warm blood was dripping from his nose. His entire nose was red. Two of his teeth were loose. Scrape marks were found on his sides and arms from when he was tossed from a moving vehicle. There were scars about his neck and one of his wrists. His left nipple was burned with a vehicular cigarette lighter. Official cause of death was attributed to a lethal cocktail of drugs and alcohol. The drug admixture consisted of Tylenol, decongestant, antihistamine, and appetite suppressants. There were tire marks on his back and underpants. The homicidal motorist backed his car over Chrysell before driving away. After some additional training and success as a freelance consultant and administrator of computer systems, Randy Kraft made enough money to buy a house. He and Jeff lived there together. It was close to Ripple's and the surrounding gay community. He became active as a political advocate for the gay community. Two days after Labor Day, a group of children were playing in Paseo Sombra. It was morning. They stumbled upon a dark green garbage bag that had been dumped in the gutter. A putrid stench emanated from it. It was so pervasively pungent, they had to breathe through their mouths to remain within ten feet of it. When they had a look at what was inside, they were shocked with terror. They ran home to tell their mothers. What they discovered was a dead man squatted down into the fetal position. The autopsy revealed even more harrowing details. The body was denuded to such a degree that there was little left but sections of flesh and exposed bone. The face was cracked and purple after an arid season in the post-mortem autumn of death and decay. When the corpse was finally identified, it was found to have been the mortal domain of 19-year-old Marine Robert Wyatt Loggins Jr. Estimates had it that he had been left in the garbage bag for about a week. The date of death was impossible to determine because his skin was rancid. A sock had been inserted into his anus. A cord was tied around his neck. The coroner considered that the blood alcohol level of 0.25 combined with an antihistamine may have killed him. The official cause of death was cited as acute intoxication of chlorpheniramine, ethanol, and diphenhydramine. Only one patch of his entire epidermis was intact. His death was ruled as an accident, despite the fact that his body was discarded in a garbage bag. It was refiled as a homicide three years later. 1980. Randy Kraft hadn't done much traveling in his life. He decided to take his first out-of-state trip as an adult to Oregon, April 10, 1981. A body was found outside the Short Mountain Landfill on Peebles Road near the IF Highway near Goshen, Oregon. He was naked from the hips down. His t-shirt was pulled up to his armpits to reveal his chest. Blood, which had not cooled, coagulated in a puddle around his head. A heavy object had been used to bludgeon him. His body face and clothes were drenched in blood. His rectum was torn asunder, and bloody leakage trickled to the ground. Fingernail scratch marks were found on his thighs and genitals. He had been thrown into a ditch. This was one of the only freeway killer victims to still have identification on his person. A Washington State driver's permit revealed that his name was Michael Duane Cluck. The autopsy revealed that he had a 0.9 blood alcohol level in his system. The presence of antihistamines, flurazepam, and codeine were also detected. Law enforcement found the details of this murder especially disturbing. It seemed as though this one was personal. The murderer appeared to have attacked Kluck in a rage-filled frenzy. July In the Echo Park District of Los Angeles, local residents began to complain about a putrid stench. It wasn't unusual to smell the odor of meat in the air in this area during the summer. The Vernon Slaughterhouse was located nearby. However, the stench got worse, and it smelled differently from what the locals encountered on a typical day. The Los Angeles Police Department Rampart Division issued a request to Caltrans, Or the California Department of Transportation to find out if a dog died in the weeds near the Hollywood freeway. A cleanup crew was dispatched, but it wasn't a canine they found. What they did discover was the body of 13-year-old Raymond Davis. His body was skeletal. What little skin remained was stretched out over denuded flesh. His mother confirmed it was Raymond when she had a look at his clothing. He was strangled with his own shoelaces. Another shoelace was used to tie his wrists behind his back. Echo Park became a hive of investigative activity that day. A second body was found. It too had been bound with shoelaces. It had been strangled with an electrical wire. This body was assigned the status of John Doe 270 until his mother showed up two days later. She had been desperate to track down her 16-year-old son. She was horrified when she saw his clothing that her boy, Robert Avila, had been found in this condition. August 20th. The body of 17-year-old prostitute Christopher R. Williams was found lying near a road in the San Bernardino Mountains. He was dressed except for his shoes, socks, and underpants. Paper was stuffed in his nostrils. The cause of death was determined to be pneumonia caused by aspiration. In other words, he choked to death on his own mucus. He was so heavily drugged he would not have been able to dislodge the paper from his nostrils. He was fed Phenobarbital and benzodiazepine which have a paralytic effect on the body when administered in the dosage he was given. 26-year-old Brian Witcher was murdered shortly before Thanksgiving on Canby Hubbard Highway close to the I-5 south of Portland. He was lying in a pond of his own blood. His sweater had been pulled up to reveal his chest. His shoes, socks, jacket, and long-sleeved shirt had been removed. Police opined that he may have been robbed and thrown from a moving vehicle. He wasn't identified immediately because there was no identification on his person. There was a potentially lethal amount of alcohol and Valium in his system, though the coroner determined the cause of death to be asphyxiation. December 1982, on a road called Boone's Ferry in Hubbard, Oregon, a coterie of ragtag scavengers were rooting through refuse discarded by motorists. They were seeking items that could be traded in for refunds, like tin cans and other recyclable material. One day shortly before Christmas, they found Anthony Jose Silvera. His body was completely naked. It was lying face down. A red plastic object was protruding from his rectum. It was a toothbrush, and it had been pushed into a depth of five inches. The man who found him ran to a payphone to call the police. From what police observed, Silvera had been raped with a much larger object before the toothbrush was inserted, for his anus was still distended. Investigators speculated that he had been raped with something akin to a table leg. His body had been nipped and pecked by rodents, avian scavengers, and other wildlife, including a creature who had chewed off his toes. A pathologist found that his blood alcohol level was at .23. Valium was also detected. Semen was found in his rectum there was a ligature scar on his neck from when he was strangled to death. December 8th, Randy Kraft was in Michigan at the Amway Grand Hotel. He had attended a Lear-Sigler corporate training seminar. He and a colleague, Ronnie Titkin, were due for an annual performance review before they headed back home. Titkin was in awe of Kraft. He gave a presentation on computer management techniques And out drank everyone when they went out for a few drinks. He was astonished when he found Kraft in a rental car the next morning, free of hangover symptoms. There was something different about that man that he could not put his finger on. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34
0: The Titans Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history.
2: Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder.
0: The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back, not guilty.
2: What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for
0: big mistakes. Look what happened in O.J. Simpson and look what happened in Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. What do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia,
1: Detective Lieutenant Jack Christiansen was designated as the liaison officer connecting the Kent County Sheriff's Office and the Shaneborn family. It was Christiansen's charge to drive to the family's farm after the bodies of two young men were discovered. The corpses were found by a power company meter reader. They were arranged neatly and placed adjacent to the Plainfield Township water tower. One of them was nude. He was laying on his back. His legs were spread out in a V-formation. The other man was spread out in the same way, but was wearing clothes. The naked man was identified as 20-year-old Christopher Shaneborn. The other man was 24-year-old Dennis Patrick Alt. Their bodies were frozen and coated with an inch of freshly fallen snow. From a distance, it looked as though Alt's body was aligned at a right angle to that of Shaneborn, to form two sides of a triangle. One of Shaneborn's feet was resting on Alt's abdomen. The offender punctured Shaneborn's penis with a ballpoint pen, pressing it all the way into his bladder. The pen bore the logo of the Amway Grand Hotel. The only blood found at the scene had leaked out of Shaneborn's urethra. There were ligature scars on his neck, Alt's sweater was pulled up, exposing his chest. His pants were unzipped and his genitalia were exposed. He wore socks but no shoes. Both men had alcohol and Valium in their systems. They were given this cocktail to immobilize or render them unconscious while they were tortured. December 9th. The body of Lance Trenton Taggs was found in weeds near Airport Road near Wilsonville. He was clothed except for shoes and socks. There was alcohol and Valium in his bloodstream. He died from choking when a sock was stuffed down his throat. His pants were unzipped. One of the pockets was pulled out, possibly indicating that his wallet had been stolen. January 26th, 1983. A fierce rainstorm lashed the coast of California, resulting in a large volume of aquatic detritus washing ashore. At 11 a.m. the next day, an employee of the California Department of Transportation spotted what he thought was a mannequin in the ice plant near the shoulder of the 605 freeway on-ramp. Upon closer inspection, he discovered the ghastly reality that it was, in fact, the body of a real human being, And it was deceased. The skin was gray and the eyes were shut. There were no shoes on the man's feet, no belt around his waist. There was no identification on the man's person. He was estimated to have died around 1 a.m. on January 27th. Alcohol and Valium were found in his system. This was not found to have brought about his demise strangulation and aggressive blows with a heavy object were determined to be what killed him. There were ligature marks and rope burns on his wrists. He had been sodomized shortly before he was executed. After being initially designated John Doe Seal Beach, he was later identified as Eric Herbert Church a week later. The skeleton of Mikhail Lane was found on a remote mountain hillside near the town of Ramona. His shoes and belt had been removed. No clothing of any kind was found at the scene. His remains decomposed to the point where it was impossible for a pathologist to determine the cause and date of death. February 12, 5.20 a.m. Off-duty LAPD officer Donald Betchelder was driving to work when he caught a body in his headlights. When he got out of his vehicle to investigate, he saw the bare right foot twitch. He assumed the young man got heavily inebriated and passed out there. He went to a gas station and summoned a patrol unit. When a patrol unit arrived three minutes later they checked for a pulse. There was none. Though the body was still warm. The young man was stark naked. They flipped the body over. They were mortified by what they saw. There was a gaping hole where his severed genitals had been. The hole was still bleeding. When the paramedics attended to the matter, they pronounced him dead. No identification was found. Assuming from all the skid marks found on the boy's body, it was apparent that he was thrown from a moving vehicle and sent shoulder-rolling along the pavement. There were no missing persons reports regarding a man fitting his description, so he was classified as a John Doe. During the autopsy, the contents of his stomach were analyzed. He had swallowed aspirin, diazepam, and propranolol, which is used to treat heart disease and hypertension. He imbibed alcohol, possibly as much as a six-pack. A ligature scar was observed around his neck. The cause of death was determined to have been strangulation. After posters were distributed throughout the local gay community bearing his image, a man known as Franco identified the man by his nickname, Coco. Coco was later identified as Joffrey Allen Nelson. February 13th, a ranger from Mount Baldy Village pulled over on Glendora Ridge Road to enjoy the view. Fifteen feet down an embankment, he saw what he initially presumed to be a man lying on a dead tree branch at the edge of a cliff. He called to the man but got no response. The ranger called for reinforcements. An hour later, LA County Sheriff deputies pulled the body up to the hillside carefully. He was fully clothed except for his feet. His jeans were unbuttoned with the zipper pulled down. His underwear had been pulled down past his groin. There were abrasions next to his right ear and under his right eye. Every inch of exposed flesh was coated in beach sand. No identification was found. He had been sodomized. He was tied up and strangled. He was given beer propranolol, and diazepam. The official cause of death was ruled to be asphyxia, caused by compression of his neck. May 14th, two California Highway Patrol officers, Sergeant Michael Howard and Officer Michael Sterling, pulled over a 1979 Toyota Celica in the Orange County Township of Mission Viejo. The motorist was driving erratically typical of a drunk driver. The driver was Randy Stephen Kraft. The officers saw him reach in back of his car and take a jacket from the back seat. He transferred the jacket to the passenger side front seat. He did what drivers seldom do on an occasion like this. Once he pulled over, he got out and walked over to the patrol car. The officers assumed that he did this to draw attention away from his vehicle which might contain some kind of incriminating material. Sure enough, a cooler of beer was found in the car. He even discarded half a bottle before walking to the cruiser. Sterling put Kraft through a field sobriety test. He asked him to put his finger to his nose and walk a straight line. Kraft complied, and while he did so, Sterling noticed that the fly of Kraft's pants was open. Kraft admitted that he drank three or four beers, but was sober. Sterling placed him under arrest for a DUI. While Sterling placed Kraft in custody, Howard walked up to the passenger side of Kraft's car. There was a man sitting in the seat. He tapped on the glass to get his attention, but got no response. He rapped on the window harder and shouted, but the man still did not react. The man was 25-year-old Marine Terry Lee Gambrill. He was slumped back in the seat with a black jacket draped over his lap. He looked like he was asleep. Howard advised Sterling that there was a passenger in the car. Sterling asked Kraft where his friend lived. Kraft said he didn't know. He picked him up as a hitchhiker a few miles back. Typical protocol was to give the sober passenger the opportunity to drive the car home. This way, the arrestee wouldn't have to pay the impound fees along with bail and fines. Howard tried opening the passenger door, but it was locked. He walked around to the driver's door. There were several empty beer bottles and pill vials on the floorboards. A folded five-inch buck knife sat on Randy's seat. Howard touched Gambril's forearm to rouse him from sleep. His flesh was cold and clammy. This man wasn't drunk and asleep. He was dead. He checked his pulse and found that there were no signs of life. Howard lifted the jacket from the man's lap. Gambril's fly was open and pulled up tight around his scrotum, leaving his penis and testicles facing upward. His lap was soaked with urine from when his bladder gave way during expiration. His hands were bound with the laces from his shoes. Fresh pink ligature marks were found on his wrists. His shoes had been removed and placed under the seat. He was strangled by his own belt. Howard asked Sterling to take the man's pulse. Sterling, too, confirmed that Gabriel was dead. The officers summoned paramedics to the scene. They tested his vital signs. He was flatlining. One paramedic asked Kraft if he gave Gambrel anything that might have caused cardiac arrest. He said he gave him some Ativan. The paramedics performed CPR and carried out other protocols to revive the man. With intravenous drug treatment and cardiopulmonary resuscitation, Some faint electrical activity was detected in his heart. Gambrill was taken to a hospital's trauma center. Doctors did what they could to revive him, but it was all for naught. He was pronounced deceased at 2.19 a.m. Randy Kraft was now suspected of being one of the freeway killers. Investigators searched his car thoroughly. Underneath the floor mat of the driver's side was an envelope filled with 47 photos of young men. Some were nude. Others were clothed. Some were dead while others appeared to be. One young man was naked and slung over a couch. He was either dead or high on drugs. His eyes were glazed over as they looked straight into the camera's lens. His mouth was slackened and hung open. Other men who were photographed appeared to be sleeping. They were approximately the same weight and height as Randy Kraft. Many of them had military haircuts. The seat Gambril sat on was drenched in blood. It wasn't Gambril's, however. He wasn't wounded. Next came the car's trunk. They opened a briefcase. Inside, they found a tablet holding 61 neatly printed notations. To the casual observer, there was something cryptic about the notations. Terms like stable, angel, harry-carry, and EDM were used several times. One investigator opined that this was a documented record of all of Kraft's murders, hence the scorecard. The investigators went to work matching up bodies with notations. Investigators searched Randy Kraft's house. Two couches that were used to display corpses were removed for examination. A wall was stained with blood. They found a shaving kit in the bathroom that bore the name Mike Cluck. In the garage they discovered a jacket that belonged to Chris Shaneborn. His name was found on a lining inside. Other items that had once belonged to victims were found. When asked about the names on the scorecard, Kraft said they were names for friends he'd made in the gay community. The investigating officers didn't believe him. The scorecard became highly valuable as evidence in the case against Randy Kraft. Seven notations mentioned Portland, and Kraft became suspect number one in seven unsolved homicide cases. It would take years for detectives to solve the mystery of what resided behind the cryptic notations. It was never completely decoded. Jeffrey Allen Seelig was questioned. The officers were curious to know how he could be in the dark about Kraft's crimes. He said they had driven the highways together in search of male hitchhikers. He said they only had sex with the men. He did say that when he and Kraft had an argument, Kraft would go driving alone. He would take to the highways, sometimes going as far as San Diego. He said that for the past two and a half months, Randy could not become sexually aroused with him. They were seeing a couple's counselor, but were not making much progress. He told the police that during their time as a couple, Randy had gone as far afield as Grand Rapids, Portland, and Washington State while he was employed with Lear Sigler. He and Randy carried a supply of tranquilizers in his car, including Meprobamate, Equinol, and drugs for the treatment of anxiety and hypertension. Selig was a suspect in the murders because police were skeptical of the notion that Kraft could have committed the murders alone. Forensic evidence led police to believe Kraft had an accomplice. Another point was that it would have been difficult for him to lift the corpses by himself. It especially would have been difficult to throw them from moving vehicles while he was driving. Sometimes two sets of footprints were found at crime scenes. A semen sample found on Eric Church's body was not a match for Kraft's DNA. The photographs found in Kraft's car were not developed at his house because he didn't have a dark room. He couldn't have had them developed at a commercial photo-developing business because they would have reported the images to the police. A close associate must have developed the photos for him in a private setting. Kraft's first live-in boyfriend, Jeff Graves, was questioned about the murders, but he denied involvement. There was no evidence linking him to the crimes. He died from AIDS in 1987 before police could question him again. Though Kraft was arrested in 1983, his case didn't go to trial until 1988. In 1989, he was convicted of 16 counts of murder, one count of sodomy, and one count of emasculation. He was sentenced to death. He is still on death row. In 1992, Randy Kraft sued author Dennis McDougall and Warner Books for publishing the book Angel of Darkness. He was apoplectic, stating that the book smeared his good name. He was nettled by the tone of the book, feeling the portrayal of him as a sick and twisted man was unqualified. He was concerned it would sabotage his chances of getting a job should he be released. He pursued a settlement of $62 million. The lawsuit was deemed frivolous and was dismissed in 1994. Randy Kraft plays bridge with other death row inmates. One of them was another of the freeway killers, William Bonin. Two of the freeway killers are now dead. The families of the victims of Randy Kraft await the day when he will join Patrick Kearney and William Bonin in hell. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.